lot. Very nice to see so many of you here on a Sunday morning to hear all about vaccines, and I'll try and tell you what's going on at the university and interest you in some of the scientific aspects of, of what we're doing. But before that, a clarification. If any of you are here excited about hearing about the vaccines and Justin Young's exciting new pop group, I'm afraid there's been a terrible misunderstanding and uh, you're going to find this all very unsatisfying. So, what I will be talking about, probably, there's probably a good message in there that vaccines is getting through to a younger demographic as something exciting that you might want to be associated with, or maybe I'm just an eternal optimist. But vaccines are important. They are the most cost-effective medical intervention that we have deployed. Yes, clean water does better probably in cost-effectiveness, but probably not a medical intervention. Two diseases have been eradicated. Everyone knows about one, which is smallpox. The other is actually a veterinary disease, rinderpest, or measles for cattle, if you like. The announcement was this, was this year, to less fanfare than there should have been, for those of you who are aware of how devastating a disease that was for the livelihood of some farmers, particularly in Africa. Of course, vaccines save millions of lives uh, each year. There are some good estimates now of what vaccines are doing. And they are actually a major contributor to the increasing life expectancy, particularly in the developing world, many years ago in the developed world. And very importantly, people tend to ignore, ignore this, thereby facilitating economic growth. So malaria, which I, I work on, has been estimated to cost Africa billions of dollars a year, not just in health cost, but in lost economic development alone. So it's worth keeping that in mind when you think about investing in, in healthcare, that you probably are investi investing in growth. And of course, we're interested in veterinary vaccines, as I'll point out at the Jenner Institute, and these are major contributors to global food security, which is an increasingly topical issue, and through that again to poverty alleviation. Looking at this from a completely different perspective, a business perspective, for many decades, vaccines were the Cinderella area of the global pharmaceutical industry. They were cheap, they were sold as a commodity, wasn't much value in them, the governments weren't going to pay very much, but all of that has changed in the last decade just. And vaccines are, at the moment, probably the most rapidly growing segment of the global pharmaceutical industry. And that's driven by just a few vaccines that have been blockbusters. Pneumococcal vaccine, incredibly effective vaccine against the strains that it covers. Rotavirus vaccine looking promising, uh, particularly human papillomavirus uh, vaccine that many of our uh, daughters may have had. And it's now roughly an $18 billion industry, having been eight just a few years ago. It's consolidating. Five major players sell most of the vaccines in the world, at least to the uh, industrialized countries. But emerging markets are, of course, of increasing importance, and that's important for those of us who are interested in making vaccines for low-income populations. The whole field will be turned on its head again once new therapeutic vaccines start to work, and they, they haven't really. We have vaccines that are looking promising for treating prostate cancer, maybe melanoma, but they're not quite there yet, but that will happen. And of course, we need rapid response vaccines to be able to respond very rapidly to new pandemics, to the next SARS, to the next nasty strain of influenza. 
So just a reminder of what has got there. These are new vaccines introduced in the last decade or so, starting with Haemophilus influenzae, which has been enormously effective against meningitis, hepatitis A, a better whooping cough vaccine, Bordetella pertussis, new serogroup of meningitis, meningococcus C, that blockbuster, the conjugate pneumococcus, selling for hundreds of dollars, of course, in the United States. Very importantly for the developing world, rotavirus, a major vaccine against infantile diarrhea. Question is, can you deploy it? Can you afford to get it where it needs to be? And finally, human papillomavirus, a vaccine against cancer, as well as HPV itself. So that will have a major impact in developing countries on reducing incidence of cervical carcinoma if we can afford to get it there and deploy it. So that was the good news. The not-so-good news is here. We have no vaccines at all licensed against HIV-AIDS, against malaria, against hepatitis C, and against dengue, a rapidly growing cause of concern in many developing countries. We have subopt... Well, let's be frank. We have poor vaccines against TB. BCG is worth taking, but it's not great. There are 1.7 million people dying of tuberculosis each year. On the veterinary side, East Coast fever is an example of a vaccine that's not very effective, but just about there, out there, and typhoid. And then the real challenge to the commercial sector is what do you do about regional diseases? Melioidosis <coughs> kills huge numbers of people in Southeast Asia, the major cause of septic death. Hardly known outside of the region. Who's going to make a vaccine for that? Rift Valley fever, important if you're in East Africa, not known if you're not. Chikungunya, actually, spreading from East Africa through South Asia. That may be in Europe very soon. So what's this got to do with Oxford University? Well, Oxford, as the RAE tables will tell you, has been for a while the leading UK university in infection and immunity, very broadly speaking. We have an unusual breadth of activity in the sense of having research programs in infectious diseases across three continents, with major programs in Asia and in Africa, mainly funded by the Wellcome Trust, but also by the NRC, with faculty heading programs in Kenya, Vietnam, Gambia, Thailand, and very recently, Laos. So excellent opportunities there for seeing tropical disease as it really is in the tropics. And what I'm going to tell you about is an exciting, well, we think it's exciting, new vaccine institute, the Jenner Institute, that was set up or refounded, if you like, five years ago with a rather unusual structure. The university doesn't very often partner with external independent entities, at least in the UK, and we've done that with the UK Institute for Animal Health, the major institute working on veterinary vaccines in the country. And we did that deliberately because we saw value in the co-development of veterinary and human vaccines. After all, the, the basic science is the same. When we develop human vaccines, we first test them in mice. Not a great model of, of you. Uh, Non-human primates, very expensive, ethically difficult, but large animals, livestock, much better models. And I'll illustrate that with tuberculosis, where we have a vaccine being developed for TB that in humans that's also uh, being developed for cattle, tuberculosis. The overarching objectives were to develop innovative vaccines using new cutting-edge science from the university. Could we translate that into new vaccine candidates? We're not going to sell vaccines, so of course we have to partner with industry, and we do that at phase two and phase three. And we're fans of the so-called One Health Agenda, combining research 
on veterinary problems and on medical needs. And when we looked around the university and the Institute for Animal Health about five or six years ago, it was evident that there were lots of groups working on infection and immunity, their own particular disease, that would love to do vaccine development, and most of them weren't, because the hurdles to entry to making something to good manufacturing practice quality, to knowing how to set up clinical trials, to having all the infrastructure you need for biomanufacturing regulation and further development were very, very high. And of course, everybody had the same challenges. So really what we're doing is trying to provide an infrastructure for people who want to use their own research to develop vaccine candidates from the bench into clinical trials. And these are some of the PIs in the university, I'll mention some of their work in a moment, and in the Institute for Animal Health that we've been working with. They're all now Jenner mm -hmm. investigators. And of course, we're called after Edward Jenner. I didn't think the country recognizes one of its greatest scientists enough. He was the arguably the founder of immunology, as well as the first person to use vaccination and report that it worked. There may have been earlier efforts, but he took a scientific approach. He was a GP in Gloucestershire, over in Berkeley, a fellow of the Royal Society already for his work on birds and many other zoological areas. And he was the discoverer of vaccination and reporter of vaccination to the Royal Society in 1796, famously vaccinating his gardener's son and showing that the vaccine prevented smallpox by giving a very low dose of variolation, as it was called then. If you haven't seen his house, Maybe you should. It's still there in Berkeley, fantastic Georgian house. The room where uh, the first vaccination took place is still there to be seen, along with many of uh, the tools of his trade. And down at the bottom of the garden is the so-called Temple of Vaccinia that was done up last year and reopened uh, a few months back, where the poor were vaccinated. If you couldn't come to the big house, you queued up at the bottom of the garden and were vaccinated for free. So we've had a two-tier health system for a little while in this country. <laughs> We're here in this ginormous green building uh, up in Headington. It's not all ours. We're one of the institutes in the Old Road Campus Research Building. And uh, for those of you who uh, haven't been more than a mile from Carfax in, in recent years, this is the layout of the Old Road Campus, the most rapidly growing part of the university. A couple of hundred million pounds worth of buildings there in the last five years. The campus is over there, and that's the Churchill Hospital. Our green building is there with the general laboratories, and we're just a short walk from the Churchill and from these two very important clinical facilities that are on the next slide. The CCVTM is the Center for Clinical Vaccinology and Tropical Medicine, where last year we recruited just over 2,000 volunteers to vaccine trials in Oxford. And it's also, of course, the home base for those five or six units overseas that Oxford supports. And right across the road, is a small pilot facility for good manufacturing practice manufacture of vaccines. So seven or eight vaccines that we've taken into clinical trials have been made in the university in this pilot facility, which I assure you is very unusual for any, any university in Europe to have. We have three priorities. Global health I'm going to talk about. Vaccines that make a difference for very difficult diseases. The, the easy vaccines I assure you have been made. They're on the market. We're committed to translational research. There's too much research on vaccinology showing vaccines that work in mice that goes no further. That's not really useful even to the mice. We've taken 28 vaccine constructs from the bench to clinical testing in the last seven or eight years. 
And as I mentioned, another principle that we try to follow is that of co-development of veterinary and human vaccines. That's not been done much before, surprisingly, really because of history and because of veterinary schools and medical schools being separate. And of course, Oxford doesn't have a veterinary school. So what's in the clinic at the moment, and I'll tell you about a few of these, are five um, programs for malaria, tuberculosis, HIV AIDS, hepatitis C virus, so I won't say much about that, and pandemic influenza, which of course has been in the headlines in the last year or two, and preclinical programs on new meningitis, staphylococcus, or if you like, MRSA vaccines. There isn't a vaccine against staphylococcus, annoyingly, that's why MRSA is such a problem, and dengue, which is peculiarly difficult for a variety of reasons. In parallel, in the other half of the Jenner Institute, at the Institute for Animal Health, mainly down in Perbright now, major programs on new foot and mouth disease vaccines, for example, trying to get away from having to use the virus to manufacture the vaccine, which gave rise to those terrible leaks and, uh, in the manufacturing facility a while back. Avian and swine influenza, of course, the same virus infecting birds and humans now. African swine fever, a major problem for pig rearing in Africa, bovine RSV, and blue tongue, which arrived uh, unexpectedly and unwelcome in the UK a couple of years ago, and a vaccine was used very rapidly to control that by vaccinating large numbers of sheep. And just in the last year or so, the Jenner has been uh, supported by James Martin and his school, school formerly the School of the 21st Century, now the Oxford Martin School, who have started a vaccine design institute uh, that Susan Lee and I co-direct which has a focus on very early stage vaccine design. Susan's a structural biologist, a real interdisciplinary focus there. We go from structural biology to health economics to policy, and that is complementing the activities of the Jenner Institute, which, as I say, focus on, uh, focuses on translation and on veterinary and human co-development. So the question I'm often asked from a general audience is, you know, why, why is a university doing this? Aren't there companies the size of GlaxoSmithKline, Pasteur, Maria, now Sanofi Pasteur, with billions of dollars to invest developing vaccines? Shouldn't they do the research? Why don't they do that research? Are we really needed? And the short answer is yes, we are. And the reason for that is that large companies that are now absolutely enormous want to buy what are potentially products, not research ideas. And we have lots of research ideas. Taking those ideas into clinical testing is a very high bar, and that's what we do. And what the large pharma companies would much prefer to do is to buy something at phase two and develop it into phase three and license it, and do two or three of those, rather than take 25 ideas from the bench and have the bother of finding that most of them work, because most of those, the attrition rate is very, very high. So we call this crossing the valley of death from the bench to clinical testing, and really what we're about is taking concepts and new ideas in vaccinology, and there are plenty of those, and trying to get them to become products. So the bit we do is from the bench here to phase one, and then usually phase two testing before vaccine companies are interested, and then the very large investment required for phase three trials and registration and licensure is taken on by pharma. But to take malaria as an example that I know well, no pharma company has ever in-licensed any candidate vaccine for malaria from any academic entity. And people have been trying to make malaria vaccines since at least 1914. So it's not easy, and with the difficult diseases, pharma knows as well as most funding agencies that most of that research is not going to produce a vaccine 
in the very short term. So we're trying to bridge that gap. As I say, we've, we believe you can't prove your point in small animals. You have to move on to clinical testing. 28 of those vaccines that have gone into clinical testing in Oxford, 11 of those so far have moved into clinical trials in African countries, and this is one of the most translational vaccine activities anywhere. To do that, of course, we need partners in Africa. We have superb partners, and this has really changed in five or ten years. There are superb research groups fully able to do GCP, good clinical practice quality trials, suitable for registration of vaccines at lots of sites in Africa. We've worked closely with the Welcome Program in Khalifa, one of the units linked to the university, University of Nairobi, Uganda Virus Research Institute, particularly the MRC labs in the Gambia, which have been there for about 70 years now, units in Senegal, Burkina Faso, and importantly for the TB program, the University of Cape Town in South Africa. So here is one of those uh, sites, Farafeni, on poorest countries in Africa is the Gambia, excellent research unit there funded by the MRC, uh, Farafani's upcountry, and that was the Oxford, one of the first trials of one of our MVA malaria vaccines being tested in the Gambia. But we also work with other of the, others of the Oxford overseas units, I mentioned some of these earlier, Vietnam, very important for avian flu, that was where one of the major outbreaks was in uh, Ho Chi Minh City and the unit uh, directed by Jeremy Farrar, who first characterized the clinical side of the severity of avian flu. Thailand, Nick White and Nick Day, focusing on several diseases. But it's Kenya and Kalifi that's been most important for our malaria vaccine development program. We work with a unit that's directed by Kevin Marsh. It's been there since the late 1980s. Quite a few expatriate and lots of local staff on the clinical and field research sides with integrated clinical, demographic, epidemiological, and basic scientific research. Fantastic new building funded by Wellcome, opened a few years ago. And a lot of community research. If you don't do community research, you won't be able to do your vaccine trials. If you don't understand what a person in a village in the coastal district of Kenya thinks a vaccine is, and it's not a trivial thing to explain, if you don't have any scientific background, then your trials aren't going to work and people are not going to participate. So there's a lot of community engagement and, of course, deployment of other interventions such as bed nets and so on to control malaria. So let's focus on malaria just for a few minutes to give you uh, an idea of what we actually do and one scientific example of a vaccine program in, uh, in active development. This is a child I looked after in the Gambia, ooh, 1988, 23 years ago now. Malaria is still the major cause of childhood mortality. It's very seasonal, and it strikes six-month-olds to five-year-olds. In Africa as a whole, there are about 800,900 deaths from malaria each year, despite a huge investment in malaria control. And that's the good news. There's now about $3 billion a year being spent on malaria control in Africa. A few years ago it was 1 billion, go back 10 or 15 years ago it was 200,000. That's mainly bed nets and spraying and better treatment and malaria mortality has fallen from probably about 1.2 billion to it's about 0.8 at the moment. There are still, as well as that horrendous mortality, hundreds of millions of cases, not just in Africa, Asia, South America as well. And the two billion, as I said, has gone up. Tools such as spraying, drugs, impregnated bed nets have a finite period of utility. So even though that's 
doing something useful at the moment. Once the mosquitoes become resistant to insecticides, the parasites resistant to the latest drugs, you're running out of tools. So we have to keep up by developing new ones, and one of the best ones would be a vaccine that works against all strains. It's not easy. There are no vaccines against parasites that work for human beings. It's a bad starting point. Malaria is complex. There are many stages to the life cycle. There are groups out there trying to make vaccines against the sporozoite that the mosquito inoculates, against the liver stage that the sporozoite generates when it infects the liver, against the blood stage caused by parasites coming out of the liver and infecting red blood cells. And that's the stage that causes disease and, and death. And even against the mosquito stages, the parasites change again as they're taken up in another blood meal and enter the midgut of the mosquito. And there are yet again different antigens from the parasite that are expressed inside the mosquito. So it's not going to be possible to probably to have a single antigen that covers all of those stages. We've focused a lot on the liver stage for many years. In recent years, we have a very powerful group led by Simon Draper working on blood stage malaria, an embryonic program working on transmission stages, Shumibiswas and others, and even a candidate against the sporozoid. So we're probably the only group with vaccine components against all four stages of the life cycle in development. And to understand a little bit of what we've done, particularly on the liver stage, you need to know just a tiny bit of immunology. There are two arms to the immune system. The arm that most vaccines target is the humoral arm generating antibodies, and essentially all the vaccines you've had work through producing high titers of antibodies that bind to the infectious pathogen before they enter cells, mop it up, clear it, phagocytose it, whatever, whatever, and you don't get the infection. The problem is many pathogens, particularly viruses, but also malaria, live inside cells where literally the antibodies can't get in to tackle them. So if you've got HIV entering the uh, mucosal site and it's inside cells, antibodies are not going to work. In the liver cell, antibodies won't work, but these T cells, part of the cellular immune system, they come in two flavors, CD8 and CD4, these are the best killers, they can recognize infected cells and clear the infection in the cell by killing that cell. So they're sort of an intracellular defense system, and that is a system that for 10 or 20 or probably 30 years, people have been trying to stimulate by vaccines not just for antiviral and anti-malaria defense, but if we could get this to work really well, we would have therapeutic vaccines against malignant cells, against cancer, and be able to do a great deal. What we've been trying to do is to use viral vectors, as we call them. These are attenuated, safe viruses that we put a malaria gene into, and then when that virus infects the cell, the malaria gene is expressed inside the cell, and you get a cellular immune response to it. It's gone fairly well. We're one of only two programs to have shown significant efficacy against malaria in humans. That is repeatable. We've done quite a lot of trials now. Over 1,000 people have been vaccinated by vector vaccines coming from Oxford, here, and in the Gambia, and in Kenya, and uh, now in Senegal. And the Oxford malaria vaccine unusually works through cellular immunity rather than antibodies, providing a way of tackling some very difficult other diseases if we can really optimize cellular immunity. So here's a cartoon of what happens. That sporozoite that the mosquito inoculates goes into the liver cell. There we have a cartoon of it dividing inside a hepatocyte, a liver cell. And while it's in the liver for about a week, 
It's leaking out antigens into the cell. These get presented on the surface of the cell where these killer T cells can recognize that that liver cell is infected because there's a bit of the parasite on the surface. And then our cellular immune system is able to kill those liver cells. And very tantalizingly, you have about 10 to the 11 liver cells. Only about 20 of them get infected by a mosquito bite. So you only have to well, find and kill those 20 infected liver cells. And the way we do that is take an antigen from the parasite. It happens to be called TRAP. We add on other bits of the parasite, shown in color here, to broaden the immune response. And we put that into a whole variety of different vaccine types and ask which of those would work best in terms of generating lots of T cells, enough to kill all the infected liver cells. And that's actually the challenge we've been facing for the last 10 years. Can we produce enough liver cells, sorry, can we produce enough T cells by vaccination to clear the liver? And the best way that we have found of doing that, and we would argue this is the best way anyone's found of producing lots of T cells by vaccination, is to actually use two different viruses as shown here, one after the other. One primes the immune system, the other boosts the response. So we call it prime boost vaccination. The best virus for priming is an adenovirus, which is actually something that causes the common cold. We take out the genes that allow it to replicate, so when we put in the virus, it doesn't replicate in you or cause colds. And one of the problems with doing that is that we've all had colds and we have antibodies that tend to dampen down the effect of the vaccine. So the twist we put on this was finding some viruses from chimpanzees. We tend not to get infected very often by chimpanzee strains of adenovirus. And we use a chimpanzee adenovirus to prime. And then the best boosting vector is the old, well, Jenner's old smallpox vaccine strain, only a slightly safer, more updated strain called MVA, modified virus anchora. We just give one dose of one, and two months later, one dose of the other, and we get very strong immunity. And that's in, in trials for malaria, hepatitis C, and HIV at the moment uh, in the clinic, and shortly for flu and tuberculosis. So just to put some numbers on that, if you use one vaccine, as shown on the top of the slide here, you get a few cells, 50 from DNA or Falpox or MVA, these older viral vectors. If you use our new chimpanzee adenovirus at CH63, you get about 800. And if you use that followed by the MVA vaccine, as I showed on the last slide, on the bottom line there, you get 2,800. And that's the sort of number that we need, thousands of cells per mill of blood targeting malaria, to get this vaccine to work. We can show that it works by inviting people, volunteers, to come and not just be vaccinated, but to have some malaria as well. And 250 people, going on 300, have been challenged, as we call it, with infectious mosquito bites as well as vaccinated. Not in Oxford, but down in Imperial College London. We go down on the train and peep up into the insectary for a quick bite, as we say. And then you're looked after rather carefully for the next two weeks, monitored twice a day with microscopy and very sensitive PCR analysis. And what we can do as a field or as a community, if you like, is challenge people in a variety of ways these days. And this is hugely cost-effective safe, or we wouldn't be allowed to do it. 1,400 people worldwide have been challenged with malaria. But you can also have flu. You are locked up if you're given flu because you may cough over the general public if you're allowed out. Typhoid, the work of Andrew Pollard, Professor Pollard in Oxford, now testing typhoid vaccines. And we're not doing RSV yet. You have to go to London to get respiratory syncytial virus. But this is a very important aspect of vaccinology as a whole. 
So when we challenge people with malaria after that vaccine, what we find, as shown here, most people, well, all the controls get malaria. About a quarter of those who are vaccinated don't get malaria at all, and about another 30% get partial protection against five infectious bites, and that's probably more protective than it sounds. We're getting efficacy in almost 60% of people, and that's almost as good as it gets with any malaria vaccine. There are only two that have got to that sort of level of the 30 or 40 that have been tested worldwide. So we're encouraged by that. Some people come back again and are challenged a second time, and we can see some efficacy eight months later. And very importantly, the T-cell response that people get correlates with the efficacy of the vaccine. So we have a way of measuring whether the vaccine is likely to work in different individuals. So we can show that the efficacy of this vaccine correlates with the number of CD8 killer T-cells that we find in the clinic. That's the first time we've really got cellular immunity to work in humans vaccination. The safety, I haven't shown you, but it's very good with these vector vaccines. And this vaccine has gone on to trials in sub-Saharan Africa. This is our favorite vaccination clinic in Sakuta, just outside Banjul in the Gambia, where there's a research clinic and many children are enrolled each year, some thousands, into a diversity of vaccine trials. And we're funded by the European Commission to take this vaccine further into trials in Kenya, the Gambia. We've done those phase one into children in the Gambia. That's been completed satisfactorily. And we're now looking at a large-scale trial, probably in 2013, around about 1,000 infants vaccinated in Banfora in southern Burkina Faso, where the transmission intensity of malaria is so high that it's a very efficient place to test new vaccines. So I'll leave uh, malaria there and tell you a little about, bit about the other disease vaccines that are under development in Oxford. TB is something that we started working on 10 or 15 years ago now. We attracted a very impressive clinical fellow, Helen McShane, who made a vaccine candidate in the lab in 1998. That vaccine is now the most advanced new TB vaccine in development anywhere in the world. Why do we need a new TB vaccine if we have BCG? Well, in short, BCG is not very protective. It's useful when given to babies to prevent lung disease in babies, and meningitis from tuberculosis in babies. It really doesn't work in teenagers or young adults. And the problem there is that that is where the great burden of TB mortality and morbidity is worldwide. It's young people, young adults, who mainly die from TB. So we need a vaccine for them, and we frankly need a better vaccine for babies, and we need a better vaccine for people who are HIV-infected who, of course, are at hugely increased risk of TB because they're infected by that virus. So this very simple vaccine, in a way, is the NVA vector strain I mentioned for malaria. This time we put a TB antigen into it. It's the major antigen from Mycobacterium tuberculosis called 85A. First clinical trial in 2002. It's now been through 14 clinical trials competed, completed in the UK, the Gambia, Senegal, and South Africa. And this just gives you a flavor of a clinical development program. So why do you need so many trials? Can't you just take a vaccine, find out if it works, and if it does, license it, if only. Of course, you've got to show that it's safe in adults before you go into children. With TB, you have to show it's safe, not just in people who've never had TB, like most of us, in people who are infected by TB but not diseased, and that's about 2 billion people worldwide. And then there's this horrible 
concern that if you vaccinate people who have lots of bacteria, you might get what Dr. Koch discovered in the late 19th century. Koch discovered the TB bacillus, made a vaccine, and killed people with his vaccine because they got a hypersensitivity reaction vaccinating people with lots of bacteria in the lungs. So we have to be very careful about that. So the short answer is safety. At every stage, you go through safety trials. When you move to a new country, you go into adults first, then young children, then babies. So it takes time, as you can see here. Timeline 2002, this has moved on. We're now in 2011. But Helen's now in two efficacy trials, one in infants in Cape Town that I'll mention in a moment, and another one that has just started in South Africa and in Senegal, asking if the vaccine works in HIV-infected individuals. That would be a very important target population in Africa, given the huge numbers of people HIV-infected. So the vector, as I said, is MVA. It's a non-replicating virus that boosts T cells very well, an excellent safety record in many trials and used as a smallpox vaccine. And the major antigen is an enzyme in the cell wall of the mycobacterium. And very importantly, it's completely conserved in TB strains. And that's the very good news about TB. It's not genetically polymorphic like HIV and malaria, where we struggle to find conserved antigens. In fact, this antigen is so conserved, it's identical in the leprosy bacillus, which is a very distant cousin of TB. So the trial looks like this. It started uh, in the efficacy trial, started in 2009. It will report next year. 2,800 infants, five months of age, have been enrolled here in the Western Cape province of South Africa. They all get BCG, which is standard of care, if you like, and then half of them are boosted with MVA and half are boosted with an irrelevant control vaccine. We've attracted a commercial partner called Emergent Biosolutions, a large U.S. company, to partner in this. We have funding from the Wellcome Trust and from the ARAS Global TB Vaccine Foundation, which is entirely funded by the uh, Gates Foundation in Seattle, and a major collaboration with Willem Hanicom and his colleagues at the University of Cape Town, who run this trial. So three years to get an initial read on efficacy, simply because you need to vaccinate a large number of children and follow them up and see if the vaccine reduces the incidence of TB. One more interesting aspect of TB, I think, is that when we test TB vaccines in animals, not just mice, but also guinea pigs, guinea pigs are called guinea pigs when people volunteer for experiments because in the early 20th century, TB was such an important disease. There was so much research on TB, and the guinea pig was the standard model. It became the hoover of experimental research. So guinea pigs, we don't use them very much anymore. But we do use macaque monkeys. Then the vaccine does work. And the vaccine also works in cattle. As I told you, cattle is a very important disease for agriculture in this country. The UK government spends more on vaccines for cattle TB than for human TB. But there's a reason for that. But in all of those models, if we give the vaccine into the lungs, it works better than if we give the vaccine into the arm. Not terribly surprisingly, the bacilli come in through the lungs. If you have mucosal immunity, the T cells will be standing by, ready to engulf or kill the mycobacteria. So could you do that in humans? We don't know, but in the next few weeks, Helen McShane's group is going to start using this very simple device, rather like the ones you use for lung disease, to vaccinate people with aerosols. And hopefully, that may be a deployable route of immunization. The WHO have just licensed an aerosolized measles vaccine, which is very convenient for older children 
or older infants and young children in India. So maybe that's how we'll end up delivering TB vaccines. During all of these trials, we take the opportunity to do quite a lot of serious immunology and molecular biology. After all, there's no other way of finding out what immune response protects people against TB unless you vaccinate them, some are protected, some are not, and you compare the immune responses in those who are protected. We do that by measuring numbers of T cells, their contents of cytokines, all sorts of things, including the RNA in these cells, which gives you an overview of the expression pattern of genes in the cells that are targeting TB. So you simply take the blood, extract RNA. These days, look for a million different uh, SNPs, or genetic polymorphisms, in the individual, and look at the RNA to see which genes are being expressed. And we can find, very interestingly, a profile of RNA expression in the people who respond well to the BCG vaccine and who are protected by it. And that was a huge trial in thousands of South African children using this rather new technology of uh, microRNA profiling and now RNA sequencing. And this gives us a clue to what we need to generate with an improved vaccine in the next generation, if you like, of vaccine development. So let's leave TB aside and come on to influenza. And this is the work of Professor Sarah Gilbert at the Jenner Institute, who incidentally has worked with me on malaria for many years. She now has her own independent flu vaccine development program. And of course, there are flu vaccines on the market. Lots of them. Many of you have had them. The way they work is essentially all the same. They target the external antigens of the virus. There's the virus. You have these spikes on the surface that are mainly hemagglutinin, Hence, we call the virus H1 or H3 or H5 after the type of hemagglutinin. And as some of you will know, H5 is the very nasty bird flu one we've all been worried about. H1 was one of the swine flu viruses that came along unexpectedly two years ago. But human viruses, H1 and H3, circulate all the time. We used to have H2, and we make vaccines out of that hemagglutinin and vaccinate people with the protein. It's grown on eggs. It's a very old manufacturing process from the 1940s. The vaccine has to be reformulated twice a year, once for the northern hemisphere, once for the southern hemisphere, with strains that WHO identify as the key circulating strains. So it's a pretty primitive process, but it sort of works. What I mean by sort of is its efficacy depends on how old you are. If you're a baby or a child, it's reasonably effective. If it's a young adult, very effective, 70 to 90%. If you're over 50 or over 60 or particularly over 70, the efficacy is below 50%. And of course, it's in the over 70s we probably most need a flu vaccine because that's where most mortality is from influenza. So what we're trying to do with flu is to get away from having to match the strain of the virus circulating with the new vaccine strain and find a single vaccine type that will cover all strains of flu. And the way you do that is as follows. Inside the virus, not on its surface now, you have other proteins that are produced by different genes. And luckily, these are very conserved proteins. So if you go to the different human strains, you will find that that protein there, nuclear protein, is the same in H1 and H3. It's even almost the same in H5 and in the swine influences. And the reason it doesn't vary very much, we believe, is that it's not subject to immune attack in the same way that the surface proteins are subject to immune uh, 
attacked by antibodies and therefore they mutate and they drift and they change very rapidly. So going inside the virus and picking out the nuclear protein gene and the M1 gene, coding another small conserved protein, Sarah's devised a vac vaccine vector that encodes only the conserved antigens. And those are targeted, guess what, by T cells because they're internal antigens inside the cell. So what she's done has been to make an MVA encoding the NP and M1 and vaccinate young volunteers fairly recently in Oxford and ask, can she increase the T-cell response with this vaccine? Now, the first point to look at on this data slide from that trial is that before vaccination, there are some T-cells. In fact, you will walk around with round about 200, 300 T-cells to those internal antigens of flu because you've all had flu before. The problem is that that immune response is not strong enough to stop you getting flu the next time. Well, it actually it probably does a little bit, but not in all cases, depending on the dose and strain that you get. So what we can do by vaccination is increase that number to thousands, as you can see here, and it plateaus at around about 1,000, so something like five to tenfold higher than it naturally is. So the question then becomes, if we increase your numbers of T cells by fivefold, will you be protected against flu? And as in malaria, there's a fairly straightforward way of doing that by challenge. But before I show you that, importantly, we find that in the usual vaccinees, the 18 to 45-year-olds who we recruit for our trials, we get a good immune response before and after in black. In the 50-year-olds, the immune response is at least as good, suggesting it may be better. And in the over 60-year-olds, it's just as good as well. And that's unlike the traditional standard flu vaccines, where as you get older, your immune response gets much weaker. And we think that this is a type of vaccine that's particularly good for older people because as you age, you accumulate memory of the infections that you've seen. So you actually have slightly more of these memory cells ready to respond to the vaccine at day zero. You can see the 60-year-olds there may have more than the 25-year-olds. So maybe this is a particularly good solution for influenza. We've done a small pilot challenge study, partly for safety, partly to get an initial read on vaccine efficacy. And this is by dropping flu virus into volunteers' noses and keeping them in quarantine for 10 days. And the answer is it looks as if it's working, 60, maybe 75% protective on symptoms, on viral secretion, and a significant re reduction in the days of viral shedding in the vaccinees. So that's one of our newest vaccine development programs. It's one we're very excited about. We're taking it forward now into a combination approach where we simply mix the existing flu vaccine with this new vector flu vaccine, trying to get the best of both worlds, if you like, antibodies and T-cells. So maybe in the foreseeable future when you go for your annual flu vaccine, you'll get that mixture product, or even better, just the T-cell inducing vaccine. You might be able to leave out the antibody inducing component. Moving on very briefly to HIV, which is an enormous problem, as you know, and an enormous scientific challenge. Tens of millions of people living with HIV infection, mainly in Africa, Annoyingly for vaccine development, different strains in different parts of the world, and these are seriously different. C may be 30% different to A in terms of its amino acid sequence. Some people argue because of that you'll need different vaccines for North America, for East Asia, for South Africa, and guess which ones the vaccine companies have put into their vaccine? The answer is B for the clinical trials that have been done most of the infection is in Africa. 
So trying to get around just that particular problem, and let me not mislead you, there are many different problems in HIV vaccine design, not least the fact that the surface is moving, the surface of the virus is covered in sugars, and nobody can get antibody-inducing vaccines to work even in animal models, by and large. The way that Sir Andrew McMichael and Professor Thomas Henke, working here in Oxford on HIV vaccine design, have gone forward is to take a very unusual approach. Instead of taking the major antigens that most people work on in the virus, they've gone back to the genome, looked at the vast database of HIV sequences, there's only 10,000 base pairs in the, uh, in the DNA when it integrates, they've picked out those tiny segments that are genetically conserved or pretty well conserved between different viral strains. And they don't correspond to bits of the virus that do anything, they've just taken the DNA and expressed it as a bit of a patchwork here. And you can see on the top here they've taken a bit of clade C, clade D, A, B, C from different genes, guide, pole, vif, and N, so created an abnormal hybrid, if you like, and simply forced the expression of that hybrid gene in our favorite viral vectors, the chimpanzee adenovirus and the MVA. And the criticism of that was that these are sort of unnatural bits of the virus that don't normally produce an immune response in natural infection. So would they work as a vaccine? And a couple of years ago, Tom showed that, yes, if he made that, he could vaccinate mice. There was a good immune response. He went on to vaccinate some non-human primates. Again, a very impressive immune response. And just in the last few weeks, the clinical trial of this vaccination approach with this insert has shown that in humans, he can generate very, very strong T-cell responses. So that's very exciting. Here, in principle, is a different sort of HIV vaccine with only the conserved bits of the virus in it that could be used, hopefully, in any country in Africa, and if it worked. And of course, we don't know that it works, and we're moving forward to try and find the funding to do those trials in Africa and find out if we can show any efficacy. <coughs> so in summary, in this field of new vaccine development focusing on cellular immunity, or T-cells, T-cell-inducing vaccines really are making progress. Their safety looks very good. Of the thousands of people we vaccinated, we haven't had a serious adverse event. Immunogenicity these days is about 10 times stronger than when we started. We're getting thousands of T-cells regularly. And of course, a lot of that ability to make better vaccines is driven by know-how in immunology and in immunomonitoring. If you can't measure the immune response, you can't find the best way of inducing it. We have efficacy data in malaria and initial data in flu that looks very encouraging. But I suppose stepping back from this, the, the bad news, if you like, is that we do need very, very strong immune responses to get some efficacy. And that's why all the vaccines in the past for cancer and everything that induced some T-cells just didn't work. We were getting tens of T-cells, not thousands. And there remains a question of how long these vaccines will work for, in other words, how sustainable that immune response is over years rather than months. So, in brief, what we're about is testing new ideas in vaccinology. We would argue that the field needs new ideas for different types of vaccines. Prime boost vaccination, we pioneered some viral vectors, B cells, T cells protecting against flu has been controversial. We think we may have nailed that one. And I'll finish with one example that uh, there was a lot of interest in when we published uh, last year, which is thermostabilization of vaccines. As you know, 
Every year, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars vaccinating children around the world, not on buying the vaccine, not on paying people to distribute it, but on maintaining what's called the cold chain. Refrigeration of the vaccine from the point of manufacture until it's administered into the child's arm. Is there a way that we could make fridge-free vaccines that wouldn't need that hundreds of millions of pounds of investment in keeping the vaccines cold? And there are a few ideas out there. This is one of them that we're quite keen on, that we've been working on. And I'll tell you just a little bit about it in two slides. This is speeded up, actually. This is the uh, resurrection plant. lives in the desert. And the secret of its anhydrobiosis, if you like, is the sugar, a particular sugar called trehalose, which allows it to dry out and remain alive for well over 100 years and to revive itself fully on rehydration. It has large amounts of soluble inert glass-forming sugars, and I mean glass in the technical sense of a sugar-based solid, and the key sugar is trehalose. So what we've been doing is simply taking our standard vaccines and before putting them into a vial, adding glass-forming sugars to the solution. And basically, you get a syrup. It is very, very sugary. As the water evaporates, it becomes even more viscous and eventually produces a solid that is technically a glass. And the important point is that the molecules are then immobilized in that solid solution or that glass. There's no diffusion, no chemistry, no damage. And it's stable up to the softening point of the glass, which is around about 50 or 60 degrees centigrade, depending on exactly how you do it. So what we do is take that mixture and drop it onto a solid support, which happens to be a very simple membrane, the sort we use in the lab all the time. We happen to use a circular membrane here. And as you drop the vaccine onto the membrane, which has all these fibers, you get a very high surface-to-volume ratio. So the vaccine dries around every little fiber, and that's it. You leave that membrane at 30 degrees, 40 degrees, 50 degrees for months and months and months, come back and inject through it with a syringe there into a needle and ask if the vaccine works. And the answer is you can go up to about 55 degrees centigrade for six months, 37 for longer than we've been able to go, 18 months. And that would be exactly what you need to maintain these vaccines at room temperature in tropical environments. And instead of distributing glass around the world, you would just have your membrane in a very simple plastic coating, uh, coating like uh, that or casing, and that would be how your vaccine would be distributed, put it in the shed rather than putting it in a fridge. So that's one of the ideas that we're developing, and we have, luckily, a major pharma partner who's funding us to look about for their particular vaccines at the moment. Let me remind you that a lot of this is, once it's developed, done with industry, we commercialize vaccines in various ways, spin-outs, joint ventures, as with emergent biosolutions on TB, licensees, we contract manufacture, we manufacture for other people, many collaborators, and uh, many uh, funders from industry, just a few of those shown in that slide. We are a university, I would remind you as well, we do train people, this slide is just to remind you we don't discriminate, we train the rich as well as the poor, even though we train a lot of people from Africa who come to us from various units to learn about vaccinology, learn about clinical trials, and learn about how to make vaccines. And I will come on to that. I'll, I showed you our key partners in Africa. At the moment, all of these groups are excellent at doing clinical trials. That's what we've trained them to do. Other people have funded them to do. And that's fine. 
10 years ago, I couldn't phone up three people in Africa and say, I have a malaria vaccine. Would you be able to test it? Because they hadn't done that. Now there are over a dozen different sites. What there isn't in Africa, arguably in South Africa, but probably it's an exception, anywhere that you can literally design and develop a vaccine. So there are no research institutes in sub-Saharan Africa that are dealing with the problem of how do you make an AIDS vaccine. They're certainly testing AIDS vaccines, but they came from Harvard or from Merck or from Oxford or from somewhere else. And we're hoping to do something about that. We've thought about a new African Vaccine Institute. And the rationale would be, as I've said, even though clinical trial facilities exist in Africa, there's nowhere that can design and create vaccines. And we would argue that that's impeding the whole development and the whole area of vaccinology in Africa, not just the ability to decide whether vaccines are working or useful, but to control vaccines, to decide what's important for the local region, to regulate the licensure of vaccines. So very briefly, what we've decided to try and do is to identify an African-owned institute in sub-Saharan Africa with suitable facilities for vaccine design and early stage development. And we prefer that group to have interests in both livestock and human health, as we do at the Jenner Institute, and preferably with other scientific capacities to allow multidisciplinary research. And that's really one of our strengths here in the university. We have such a broad array of technological and scientific expertise, from biomedical engineering, which is an institute in our green building, to health economics, that it's enormously valuable for those of us thinking about the science of vaccine design. This center, if we could set it up, would partner actively with general investigators, and we think a reasonable goal is to have an African vaccine candidate, one designed in Africa, for Africa, in development within three years. Our lead option, this is not finalized, is to do this in Nairobi for many reasons. There's an excellent center with fantastic science, uh, science labs and <coughs> facilities at the International Livestock Research Institute. A long history since the 1970s of scientific excellence, international funding, and experience of livestock vaccine development to a degree. Recently, the African Union, along with the New Economic Partnership for African Development, has highlighted the need to develop centers of excellence in Africa for scientific research and set up what's called BECA, the Biosciences for East and Central Africa hub at Ilri in Nairobi. I was there two days ago. And it really is a fantastic opportunity to partner, as the university has done in other places in the developing world, focusing on other medical problems. So in summary, Oxford University, as far as, well, I'm pretty sure of this, actually, is the only institution with vaccine candidates in clinical trials in active clinical development for HIV, for malaria, and for TB in the developing world. We have an excellent record of successful global health partnering in Africa and Asia, and all of those units are partnered with local institutions, whether it's KEMRI, the Kenyan Medical Research Institute in Kenya, or Mahidol University in Bangkok, and so on and so forth. And I think Oxford's vaccine programs illustrate how what I've been talking about, which is really translational research, provides a key link between basic science, which has had enormous investment in the West in the last 30 years, and late-stage industrial development, which big companies are very good at doing. I would argue that the gap, certainly in vaccines, has been in linking those two to provide products for very difficult diseases. So on the 
Webb, just two or three days ago, the latest WHO childhood mortality report. I think this is worth finishing with. Childhood, the good news is childhood mortality is declining faster than ever throughout the world, developing countries as well as developed countries. But the other side of the coin is that every day, 21,000 children, that means today, 21,000 children, will die from preventable causes, mainly in a small number of developing countries. And the other statistic is worth remembering is that in developing countries, one in eight children die before reaching the age of five, compared to one in 143 in developed countries. So there's still a lot of work to do. I'd like to close by thanking the many funders from the Wellcome Trust to the US funders, the Gates Foundation, you new major UK funder, National Institutes for Health Research, and many other entities who fund us. I hope you've seen a broad program of vaccine R&D at the university, particularly the groups that I've been working with on malaria, TB, Helen McShane's group, and influenza, who've been fantastic people to work with. And so have our volunteers in all sizes and shapes and different places. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>